This episode is brought to you by Rewind. Rewind offers e-commerce brands a solution that protects their stores against unexpected downtime. Rewind adds an undo button to your store, continually saving every change you make and backing up the critical data which runs your business. This episode is also brought to you by Outer. Outer creates the world's most comfortable and durable outdoor furniture made from proprietary fabrics that are both eco-friendly and water stain, fade, and mold resistant. This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. In case you don't already know, Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce companies. Stay tuned to hear from Alexandra Collis, the Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly, an online fashion powerhouse, to hear how Gorgeous enables Princess Polly to manage all of their customer service channels in one place. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 100. Yes, this is the 100th episode of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I can't believe I'm saying that we've made it to 100. That's awesome. I'm your host, Lee Green. And today I spoke with Max Kislevitz, the co-founder of Bala. Bala is an LA-based movement company on a mission to create beautiful, design-led, functional fitness accessories and equipment that will change the way people work out. In this episode, Max shares with us his entrepreneurial journey from growing up in New Jersey with family working in the toy industry, to working as a lifeguard and swim instructor, to working in advertising for nearly 13 years, which led to meeting his wife, Natalie, and starting Bala in 2017. He talks about how a trip to Indonesia led to a sketch of the first Bala bangle on a napkin, how they launched a Kickstarter campaign to cover the upfront costs in the first year of business, and how they landed a $900,000 investment from Mark Cuban and Maria Sharapova from pitching on Shark Tank. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on when we publish new episodes every Tuesday morning. You can follow us on Spotify or check us out at stairwaytoceo.com. Until next time, I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Max, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your story and building Bala. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. You're calling in from Silver Lake. I'm over here on the west side in LA. We're like close enough almost to be in person, but COVID's still pretty rampant right now. And in another way, seeing as it's LA, we're, we're worlds apart. Um, yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, it's like two hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I'll have to stop midway and get a hotel kind of thing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, uh, COVID is uh, still sort of rampant here. And so I'm calling in from a, an empty office at, at the moment. So are you going to the office every day and the team just isn't? We have folks that we've just made it optional, really. Like we fundamentally want folks to feel comfortable. And so on some days it'll be just me and on others, it'll be 10, 15 people. In total, we're about 25 now, which is still a trip because I don't think all 25 people have ever been in the same room at the same time. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because your company's basically exploded since the pandemic. So over the past two years, but I want to let's go back way before all of Bala happened. I want to hear your story. Where are you from originally? What was childhood like growing up? So I grew up in Tenafly, New Jersey, which is about 10 miles from the city, but couldn't feel further from it. Uh, the city being New York and had a really sort of glorious suburban childhood I think maybe most notably, my family was in the toy business growing up. And so it actually, my grandparents uh, founded a company called Color Forms in the 
1950s, which was actually one of the first plastic-based toys ever on the market. And I think the original set is like sits in the MoMA in New York still to this day. And their story and like that context was always just really of interest to me. But yeah, I grew up with like my dad bringing home like giant balls of silly putty and, and prototypes and samples of concepts that they were working on. So I feel like I'd forgot the, those like 10, 15 years of my life until later in adulthood and starting Bala. But it, you know, it came flooding back when we started iterating on prototypes of our own. So you have some entrepreneurship in your blood is what you're saying. Yeah, I think, you know, like many of us, there's this romance uh, around entrepreneurship, but I, I feel like I was able to sort of see it firsthand uh, and it wasn't all what <laughs> it wasn't all roses. Uh, but so when you were a kid, were you like, I want to work in the toy business, too? Or what did you want to be when you grew up? I honestly had no idea. None whatsoever. There was a time where I wanted to be an NBA basketball player, <laughs> but I'm pretty mediocre at basketball, but yeah, no, I, and you know, I'll admit that I don't think I've, I've ever known really what I want to be when I grow up. And I, you know, I say it present tense because I, I think there's, there's still a lot of life to live. I've always actually liked the, the idea of, you know, the, the sort of modern day Renaissance man where, you know, people that have embraced mid career shifts, like there's, there's actually strength and confidence in it, even if it's not always perceived that way. So I would love to become an architect one day, who knows? Uh, but for now, guys, Bala, the limit <laughs> Yeah, for now Bala is a 24 seven, uh, effort that we are just ridiculously excited to be a part of. Yeah. And so, um, what were some of your first jobs? I was a lifeguard. You were, so was I, you know, that was a good paying gig back in the day. It was like the highest paying per hour gig you could kind of get really early. It was a good gig, actually, an even better gig that I got on the heels of that was teaching like one, not one year olds, but like, like three year olds, how to swim. Me too. I did that. Too. <laughs> yeah. You like, you made bank doing that, but it was also like the most immensely rewarding thing because you'd actually see a kid who was terrified for you to know of them, like take their first, like stay afloat. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. You have that same experience. I remember my first day, you know, on the job and the woman was like, that had just hired me was like, see that kid screaming his head off in the corner over there outside the pool with the shark shorts on, you have to try to get him in the water. And I was like, what? So I had to try to get this poor kid who was totally terrified of the water in and, and swimming. And that was like you said, it's so rewarding once you, you get them over that little hump. Well, it's amazing because it's, it's sort of like, maybe it speaks to human psychology. Like it's terrifying to be told you have to get the kid in the water, but then you somehow find a way. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's really interesting. I feel like there are a lot of life lessons to be learned from like those, that, those summer jobs. Uh, now that I think about it. Yeah. Were you at the what local YMCA doing this or where was the pool? Man. So the town had a pool, um, my folks actually moved and, and we, along with them, moved to Westport, Connecticut, um, which was on the Long Island Sound. So I actually ended up going to people's private pools to teach their kids. Oh, nice. That probably paid way more than the YMCA I was working at. No, oddly, it was like I didn't have the foresight at the time to say I should do this as like, you know, it's sort of independent contractor. Instead, there was this guy that like sort of had these relationships with parents and sent us, you know, so we got it. We got a relatively small cut. Oh, <laughs> it's like an agency for swim teachers, private swim teachers. That's funny. Yeah. But it was just this random guy. <laughs> I'm only now just realizing how strange it was, but he's taking uh, like 50% of your check. You're like, what the yeah, hell? <laughs> yeah. He's driving around a Benz and I'm just kind of like riding a skateboard. Child labor, getting kids right. to teach other kids. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what happened after that? So you, you had some kind of, you know, fun jobs here and there. I assume this was kind of in, in high school or college. Yeah. Uh, high school predominantly. And I ended up going to Colorado college, which is in Colorado Springs. And what's unique about 
CC was that you'd actually took one class at a time for three and a half weeks before then just shifting focus to another class. And for me, it felt more representative of what like the work life or like a working experience might actually be like where you're focused singularly on just one project, which isn't obviously the case where, you know, we're juggling a hundred balls at any one time, but yeah, it was an awesome experience being able to kind of like snowboard and rock climb on the weekends And after that, I got my first job, which was in advertising, where I spent the first 13 years of my career. Oh, wow. That's a long time. So what made you, I guess, stay on for so long? I feel like that's a pretty unusual amount of time spent. Yeah, what's what's fun and interesting about advertising is just such an eclectic experience, right? So you might work on like rather than being at, you know, a single company with a single brand for a decade, you know, in that same 10 year stint, you might work on 50 or a hundred brands, you know, I mean, it's not unusual for folks to, to touch like four or five pieces of business at any one time. And I just got a kick out of it um, for, you know, (laughs) until I didn't, but, you know, it's funny because advertising gets a little bit of a bad rap because, the output of advertising one, it's like interruptive to your everyday life, whether it's like digital media or, you know, if you're, if you're streaming something, but it's also reflects like this sort of lowest common denominator of its intended audience, but the exercise of actually arriving at something simple and compelling for the ad is actually a hell of a lot more interesting than the ad itself. So I just got a kick out of that, like kind of, iterative strategic creative process and starting with an idea that doesn't sound all that interesting and then developing that idea until it is, um, which ultimately we found had a lot of sort of relevance to what we're trying to do with Bala. But yeah, I think it, it, it held my interest for, for a long time because, you know, each day, week, month felt uh, fundamentally different than the one before it. That's interesting. Are there any um, interesting stories you have from your experience of a time where something seemed like it was not interesting and and how it actually did become really interesting? You know, at the core of advertising is like psychology, right? And like sociology and like, you know, so you actually are sitting behind like two-way glass, like having folks in focus groups weigh in on, you know, what a product means to them. And actually my first job was working on Febreze, the air freshener. (laughs) Everybody knows what that is. Yeah, there you go. And I, uh, you know, just the kind of emotional space, a fresh scent occupies in people's hearts and minds is like, was incredible to me at the time. Like it's a big deal. Right. And so it's not necessarily always about um, selling things people don't need to them, you know, like through, through like these nefarious ads or, uh, you know, are, or like, it's often just about kind of like the commonalities between the product offering and what people most desire. And I think it's just kind of an interesting exercise to investigate and arrive at something that just then like makes sense. Like, you know, you, you get to the right answer in a, in a sea of potentially really un not right. And what's that example with Febreze? Because weren't those commercials just like all about them sniffing around and like you kind of feel like you could smell it through the TV? Well, I would say of the like Febreze example, it's mostly just that it was an interesting thing to realize like just how meaningful a product this was in terms of achieving what folks wanted for like the presentation of their homes. Like, you know, I don't know that there was. Yeah. I think that it's being 15 years ago. It's uh, maybe I've a little fuzzy. Yeah. (laughs) So after your stint in advertising for quite a few years, where did you go from there? And and how did you come up with the idea with your partner, Natalie for Bala? Yeah. So I was actually working in advertising in, in some capacity through the first two plus years of Bala's existence. Uh, and in fact, Bala was only ever meant to be a side project, um, which I can speak a bit more about. But Natalie and I met at an agency here in L.A. called 72 and Sunny, which is sort of a, 
a global agency that works with big global brands, uh, the likes of Starbucks, Target, Jeep, Google. And so, you know, we essentially were relatively small or actually tiny cogs in much bigger sort of marketing wheels. And it was an incredibly sort of deadline driven demanding agency. So the burnout was real and it was high, you know, you'd work like I, I remember in working with Google, I was flying up to San Francisco at 5 a.m. on Tuesdays and then flying back at like 8 p.m. that night and doing then the same thing on Thursday for a year, you know, and then you get home and you have like hundreds of emails that you need to tackle. So it was just like incredibly intense. Um, so there is a lot that happens behind the scenes that does it maybe isn't like reflected one for one in the final ad product, but essentially Nat and I met and sort of quickly fell in love. And on one, I'll admit drunken evening, I was like, Hey, should we quit and travel? And at that point it was really three months into knowing one another. It's not as if we'd sort of been together all that long and she called my bluff. And so shortly thereafter, we bought one-way tickets to Tokyo and set out on, you know, what turned out to be the, the trip of our, of our lives. But it was on that trip that Bala Bengals sort of came up and started, we started developing it. So how did you, why Tokyo? How'd that come up? Was that your idea or her idea? I think we said, you know, let's start there and then see where we end up. And so uh, over the course of eight, nine months, we went to, I want to say about a dozen countries, inclusive of India, Nepal, Sri Lanka, most of Southeast Asia. And actually Bala was developed or the, the first sort of idea of it was developed in uh, Indonesia. We went to a yoga class that was far more meditative than we'd hoped. And essentially like, you know, long-term travel is amazing and it's incredibly romantic, but it's also wildly stressful. And here's two people that sort of know one another. Right. It was like what month, like four or five, and you're already in Indonesia together. I think like by the time we'd made it there, it might've been six or seven. Uh, and so <laughs> it's not as if like the luster was wearing up. It was just like, you're now getting to know someone under like very extreme circumstances where you're making, you know, decisions on the fly where, you, you know, you don't feel comfortable, you know, in terms of like your environment and surroundings and navigating it because you've never been to this place before. But yeah, we so we basically went to a yoga class with the intent of burning off steam. And it was just like a more meditative class. And so what ended up happening on the heels of that class is we started to talk about kind of the rise of class-based fitness, but folks' inability to control the intensity of class-based workouts. You know, if you're getting off work at 6, 7 p.m. and the only class you can attend is at a let's call it 101 level, but you're more advanced than that. Like, how do you push yourself a bit further? And what we've realized is that that solution existed already in wrists and ankle weights that were ubiquitous in the eighties, but had sort of fallen off, you know, the public consciousness because of their functional deficiencies for one, but also they were really ugly, you know? And so we'd looked at some of the adjacencies in like athleisure most notably and said, there's been a redesign of the adjacencies in this category, but not of the products folks are actually working out with. Um, and so we started sketching ball on a napkin at that point. And honestly, I still have the first sketch. It looks, it looks a lot like <laughs> the ball of angles that we know today. That's amazing. So you were like already sketching them out right after this yoga class. You, you guys had that idea kind of right after and and kind of went to work already with stuff on a napkin, huh? Pretty much. Yeah. And I think that really was sort of advertising foundation at play. It's like put it on paper, you know, like the, just because you've you've put it uh, down uh, in writing doesn't mean it can't evolve and get better. And and that's exactly what we did. So we first took that initial sketch and we iterated on it with other sketches. I should say we're not artists. We were just kind of saying like, you know, what if the curvature resembled that of like the iPhone at the time, 
you know, like what if it was rounded and what if instead of having neoprene, like a, sort of a neoprene bag uh, that you would wrap around your wrist or ankle the way the old school ones were, what if they were individual bars that were over molded in silicone? So we had like a, a, a growing idea of what we'd want Bala to be, not just from a design, but also like materiality perspective in those early conversations. And so the the challenge became how do we how do we start to bring this thing off the page? Early days, it was it was this just incredibly iterative process. And what were some of the first steps that you guys took to validate the concept? Now you have this idea, you have this kind of sketch in mind, maybe this vision and this, you kind of see this white space in the market, but what did you do to validate that other people might be wanting to buy this type of product? Yeah, I think our early insecurity was will people care? It is admittedly a redesign of a product folks no longer use to the same degree they once did. I mean, what a silly thing to say, let's resurrect something people seemingly don't want. The silver lining was that this was a product that people fundamentally knew about and understood. So it didn't require the same level of product education that like a brand new product might, but it it felt new again in, in redesigning it and making meaningful functional improvements. So I think post-sketch, we sort of asked anyone and everyone how we might render this thing in 3D to make it more representative of what we were after and then ultimately look to prototype it. But in, in that time, we actually said, let's launch a Kickstarter because one, we definitely don't have the money to fund the first production run to actually bring this thing to market because there's some like pretty significant upfront costs, which I think at the time were $33,000 for that opening order. But then also it can be sort of market validation. Like if we are able to raise against our goal, then we know that this could be of interest to some folks. And I will say that because it was the early genesis of the product, it was thought of in a in a yoga class. Like we knew that these could have much broader application than just yoga, but we thought we needed some focus. And so if you go back, you know, Kickstarter continues to be live. It's totally oriented toward like hands-free yoga uh, and not interrupting your workout or flow by picking up or putting down dumbbells, which is kind of antithetical to like, a flow in the first place. Right. Exactly. That's interesting. So were you guys, you know, a little nervous about putting this up on Kickstarter to the world before it kind of exists? You know, were you worried about someone taking the idea or even not even getting the money so that you could move forward? You know, I feel like there's a lot of hesitation with young entrepreneurs trying to, you know, build their first company and they need that first little bit of funding. And Kickstarter is an excellent way to make that happen. But I think there's probably a lot of fears. Did you have any of those fears or doubts before you guys launched your campaign? Absolutely. I think um, I think the idea in its simplicity is one that you know, anecdotally, when we told friends and family about, they kind of fundamentally didn't get it. And actually, my best friend uh, that I, I actually went to high school with, who has gone on to found a company of his own that's been very successful, was like, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> like, what, what are you actually doing? Um, because we'd flirted with starting businesses of our own over the years uh, together. And so, yes, there were nerves associated with putting it Kickstarter, there was also like sort of naivety associated with Kickstarter, because I think when Kickstarter started, like however long ago that was, it really was back of the napkin ideas. You would see people like posting pictures with their sketch and saying, help me bring this to market. But by the time we launched on Kickstarter, which I believe was mid 2017, you know, these are like professional design companies launching deliberately and doing paid media to support them the same way you would like think about, you know, CPAs and acquisition in the context of our direct to consumer business. Right. But we had no idea at the time. So we're just kind of like emailing everyone we know, like emailing every imaginable like publication that of course, in hindsight, like no, no one's writing about our Kickstarter campaign but we tried to just kind of make up ground and thankfully it, it kind of got a bit of momentum and we'd ultimately hit our goal. 
And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Have you ever experienced lost sales due to downtime caused by a corrupt CSV, malicious attack, or rogue third-party app? Even if it hasn't happened yet, it doesn't mean that it won't happen. That's why brands like Pier 1 Import, Lord & Taylor, Hasbro, and Staples use Rewind to keep their store protected. Rewind gives you peace of mind, protects your data, and saves you time and money by easily restoring your data, automatically backing up and keeping a record of every change you make. Get a 30-day free trial with Rewind today by going to rewind.io slash stairway to CEO. That's R-E-W-I-N-D dot I-O slash stairway to CEO. Spring is in the air, which means summer will be here in no time. But is your patio or backyard ready for action? With Outer, you can get your outdoor space decked out with the best-looking sustainable sofas, chairs, coffee tables, eco-friendly rugs, and don't forget their celebrity favorite, Bug Shield Blanket, to keep those mosquitoes away. Want to check it out for yourself? Browse over a 1,000 Outer customers' backyards online and visit a neighborhood showroom in your own neighborhood to experience Outer products in person before you decide to buy. And when you decide to buy, you can get $200 off on furniture purchases by using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. That's $200 off amazing furniture purchases with the promo code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. I'm focused on our strategy and innovation in the CX department here at Princess Polly. I have a quote and I always tell our CX leaders that customer experience is the heart of an organization and we pump the blood and deliver the oxygen to the vital organs in the business to help them thrive and grow stronger. The gorgeous platform allows our agents a seamless place to just do it all. We are really there for the customer every step of the way if they want. Our customers expect quality and efficiency where they are. So the real question is, how do you get quality and efficiency across every single platform? And then once you have it, how do you maintain it? And I believe that with the Gorgeous platform, we can do that. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, go to gorgeous.com and mention podcast for two months free. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. And so you hit your goal, you went out there, placed the order. So you have your first ball of bangles, right? And so what happened after that? What was kind of your go-to-market strategy? Yeah. So actually I will say on the heels of uh, the successful Kickstarter, it took us about a year to perfect the product. So even though the, you know, the presentation was very similar to that initial sketch, actually getting to a a user-friendly closure that was also one size fits all for both wrists and ankles. Like there's a lot of variables there that all seem pretty straightforward, but they weren't right. Because we were kind of like, like, should this be, be more like a watch band? Should this be more like uh, a hook that like comes into play? Like it will the elastic be, strong enough so that the bars don't move when folks are moving, you know, because these aren't really just designed to like sit there on your coffee table. They're designed to be kind of additive to any and every workout or, or movement in general. And so we took a year to kind of continue to develop the product and get to this perfect Velcro closure that allowed folks to like throw them on and off really simply if, if they so desired. Right. So it took about a year to do that. And then we ultimately launched on Shopify with a generic template. We had shot photo shoot with folks that we'd met in the streets of Silver Lake and just said, you know, you have an amazing look. Do you mind being in our first photo shoot? And then we just used those initial Shopify templates to populate the site. And it was a very it was a very kind of underwhelming thing, uh, but it, you know, it started slowly, but surely to work. When was this in 2018? Yeah. Like I want to say it was like March or April, 2018. Yeah. So you guys are finally launched. You're getting things going in 2018. You've perfected the product quite a bit. And then you guys were, I guess, was Shark Tank before or after the pandemic? 
So oddly, we applied to Shark Tank actually shortly after our initial launch. Shortly, I mean, I think it was six to eight months after. And we made it fairly far in that casting process before they finally said, and we're literally the expectation, we were living in Brooklyn at the time. Uh, the expectation was that we were flying to LA to, to pitch the Sharks the following week. And they called and said, actually, we've chosen not to go with you guys. Uh, and that's all the information we can share at this time because it's sort of a closed door meeting. So at the time it was heartbreaking. When was this? This was in 2018 as well? Yeah, this was like, I want to say late 2018, maybe or even early 2019. But what they'd said was, you know, we'll call you back next year. And it really genuinely felt like uh, somebody telling you, let's go on a break, but yeah. <laughs> we may get back together. And you're like, <laughs> you're like, I don't know about that, but you like, there's a, there's a little bit of hope that you can't, you know, uh, they've, they've dangled that. Uh, but sure enough, they did call us back. Um, and so Shark Tank, we filmed in the, in late 2019, uh, in September, I believe. And then we, our airing was on February 28th, 2020, which was about two weeks before, you know, the NBA shut down, Tom Hanks got it. And collectively as Americans, we realized COVID is here and things are going to be fundamentally different. So they basically rejected you guys ish, you know, like early 2019. And then you're saying in September, they called you back and they're like, all right, actually we're ready now. And the timing of that is so interesting with the episode being aired literally February 2020, because the home gym market also spiked like 84 percent from 2019 to 2020. That's crazy. Do you think that the home gym growth is here to stay now that we're in 2022? I think there are certain revelations from the pandemic, obviously ongoing, that will endure. And I think there's two really, one of which, you know, you can cook a, a good meal for, for yourself, you know, particularly on the coast, like folks that might have like the reflexes to order in, right? Like we, we cooked a ton in the pandemic and now love cooking. And I think similarly, the sort of realization that you can get a good workout in uh, from the, you know, comfort of your living room is powerful. I, I've, I've no delusions of its sort of like, you know, we hope gyms come back Bala, because Bala started two years before the pandemic. Like we never, we never thought about it as an at-home fitness product in the first place. And in fact, like we love that we see folks wearing Bala bangles out and about in their everyday lives. And that's really the intent, but undeniably, you know, folks trying to uh, find ways to stay fit from home was like an incredible tailwind for Bala especially on the heels of this like massive media moment and exposure associated with Shark Tank. So like I would I should say that before Shark Tank the, the business was growing slowly but surely and I think in our first full calendar year which was 2019 we did 2.1 million dollars in sales. So it was like it was a viable business and it was exciting that there was reception and we were getting picked up by retailers. And slowly but surely, orders started to pick up on that terrible but but, but <laughs> functional Shopify site. And so, you know, the the rejection from Shark Tank or the temporary rejection actually put us in a much better position when we did pitch the sharks in terms of like the business metrics. Yeah, you guys 10x. I think I read in a Forbes article you guys hit 20 million in revenue at the end of 2020. Yeah. We were so blindsided by it. You know, it's not as if we'd seen, we saw it, we were just trying to keep up. Like I often say that, you know, the interest in the Bengals happened to us, not by us, because I don't think we could have really orchestrated that. I think we inadvertently struck a nerve with a design-led approach to fitness accessories. And like, again, you think of the adjacencies in like boutique fitness, like, you know, folks are literally dressing up to go to the gym or, or studio studios themselves are really well designed. And then you look around the studio and it's a whole bunch of like, you know, utilitarian stuff that isn't like, that is more intimidating than inspiring. Um, so I think we'd struck that nerve before we really knew it. 
And because these are wearables, you know, people are wearing them out and about. And so they kind of became just really present in the world in a way we'd never otherwise expected. Yeah. Well, I actually watched your Shark Tank episode. (laughs) It was pretty good. I love the little 80s workout entertainment thing you guys did. You guys brought in a whole like dance crew or something doing a whole 80s themed like workout aerobic thing to get the whole vibe going. That was pretty smart. That was really good. (laughs) I don't know whose idea that was, you know, Shark Tank's like entertainment group or you guys, but that was a really good move. Thank you. Yeah, I think that was us. I think we we knew we needed to acknowledge that uh, this is a product that existed already. And we weren't trying to, you know, stay claim for having created something. Right. It's like the 80s did this this way. This is the new way. Yeah. And by the way, like the 80s was like a really unique era for for fitness. And a lot of the other component parts of like the fitness category from the 80s have have been updated and evolved. And yet wrist and ankle weights hadn't. And that was sort of like the the strategy behind leading with that is like why did this this product with meaningful functional benefit not get the love and care that every other thing did you know like like between leg warmers and you know shoulder pads and like the 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 fashion evolution it just felt like it was this like incredible oversight not to treat fitness product the same way Well, you guys have done a great job in making working out look cool and very fashion forward. Going back to Shark Tank, I know when you guys went on there, you had initially asked for $400,000 in exchange for 10% of the company. But then, I mean, I hate to spoil it for people who haven't seen the episode, but I have to. The way that that it ended is Mark Cuban and Maria came in the you know tennis star i can't pronounce her last name very well but the the tennis icon came in for what 900k for 30% how has i want to know what was the process i'm sure tons of founders want to know how can i be on shark tank with my business right so what advice do you have for entrepreneurs that want to be on shark tank and how can what can you say about your experience in after the show how it's been with um those two as investors absolutely i think uh much as I I wish I had the answer to getting on Shark Tank, I do know it's an incredibly competitive process. And, uh, you know, I can't sit here and claim to understand exactly what it is they're looking for. But I do think like, you know, like any pitch, like focus and singularity around, you know, what your product or service is and why it's of interest, not just to your target audience, but actually the Shark Tank audience as well. Like, Shark Tank is this sort of amazing, you know, platform, but it's also a television show, right? And so though it has real consequence, you need to kind of like be thinking about entertainment value beyond uh, the product market fit. And that's why, that's actually why we did that, that 80s, you know, kind of song and dance, literally. How do we get folks interested, you know, from the get-go? They say upwards of 30, 40,000 companies apply each season and it's only a hundred or so that ultimately make it on. So incredibly competitive, but I think uh, a singular focus with some consideration for entertainment value value is a good place to start. And I think for us, like we, again, kind of similar to our launch on Kickstarter had no idea how the sharks would react. And if I just kind of extend the dating analogy, it's a little bit like going on a a first date and a blind date at that with five like incredibly powerful people while it's being filmed to be aired in front of, you know, millions and millions of people. So, you know, the, the format is actually true to how you experience it. It's not as if we'd had any informal interaction with any of the sharks. You literally walk down the, the corridor and then, then, then do your, do your pitch. And I think what folks don't see is it's, it's often not, you know, the seventh minute segment they air, it's like an hour long negotiation. They're not only just asking you questions like, tell us the numbers, what, you know, what are your landed costs relative to your wholesale price versus MSRP? Like they're actually asking really technical business questions. Some of which we felt like 
<laughs> a little bit uncomfortable answering at the time, which we, you know, so, um, but anyway, the, the experience since Shark Tank has been amazing. I mean, Mark and Maria are incredible partners that have added like more value than we could have ever imagined that like well exceed the capital that they injected into the business because the business was growing like that 900 K, which is obviously like a huge amount of money just got absorbed into sort of the inventory needs to meet or to like to at least try to meet the sort of surging demand. And so the money was like gone. (laughs) Yeah. Evaporated quick. Yeah. But we continue to talk to Mark and Maria about like the, the higher level sort of strategic moves that we're considering. And they've just been incredible sounding boards and kind of stewards of the brand themselves. So it's worth it to give the sharks that much equity. Because I always look at that show and I'm like, oh, God, that's so painful. It's so much equity. You know, you're giving away. Shark Tank valuations aren't accurate to, I don't know, institutional capital valuations, right? But what we had done was factor in a lot of the intangibles. So you're actually, I believe you're more likely to err if you take a deal, um, or at least that's kind of the word on the street. So wait, there's actually a chance that you could take a deal, but actually not get aired at all. Like you could go on the show in front of the, the sharks, but they may not choose to air your episode. That's my understanding. Yeah. Wow. You know, that it is a, it is a process, not just to match make between company and investor, but ultimately to create something with inherent entertainment value. And so, you know, and it's, it's, you know, we've seen those uh, pitches we all have where uh, someone didn't get investment, but it was incredibly intense or entertaining for whatever reason. I would suspect that Shark Tank is more inclined to air those segments than deals that are just sort of matter of fact. But, you know, again, I, I, <laughs> I can only kind of speak to my experience on Shark Tank, but I, be- I believe that's the case. I believe it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I've seen an episode or two where the founders didn't take any deals from the sharks and they got called out for it. Like you're just here for marketing. Like, <laughs> yeah. Totally. yeah. I, look, and I think like you, you, we do a lot of scenario planning, right? Like what happens if no one's interested? What happens if one interested? what happens if they're all interested? You know, we wanted to make a deal, but we didn't want to make a deal that would really be like a, a disservice to what it is we were trying to build at the time. And like, so I think there's a moment where Nat and I say like, here's what we're comfortable doing. And Mark said, okay, we'll do that. And so, you know, we, we took the deal, uh, we did the due diligence and we closed the deal and hindsight 2020, even, even knowing sort of the, the multiples, the business has kind of grown. It was like a critical step in that process. So um, we were like, we're huge fans of Shark Tank. We're huge fans of Mark and Maria. That's awesome. I'm glad it's worked out. And so you guys are in over 500 retailers now, Saks, Fifth Avenue, Bloomingdale's, Urban Outfitters, Anthropology, even online and Carbon 38, love Carbon 38. And you dropped bangles from the name. So let's talk about, I know we're going to come up to time here, but if you can kind of just go through why you guys decided to drop bangles from the name and how you've diversified your um, products, because you have a lot of cool products now with the ball of beam, bars, ring, just you have it all now. As interest in the Bengals started to pick up, we really were were sort of shocked by it, but genuinely. I mean, we were packing orders by hand for six months following Shark Tank. So Shark Tank, we got five, 6,000 orders, and we're literally setting up folding tables, blasting, talking heads, that, you know, five started drinking wine and just shipping for like 14, 16 hours a day to try to get these orders out. And we're starting to try to understand the growing interest in Bengals. And I think it really is this kind of intersection between fashion and fitness that didn't otherwise exist, right? That, you know, fitness brands only ever speak to you or present products to you as if you're aspiring to be kind of the next Olympian. And, you know, fashion, on the other hand, doesn't really acknowledge fitness existence, right? And we're just sort of like 
this is the same consumer at the end of the day. So what we realized is that actually that early formula of making products, making meaningful functional improvements to product, but also making them more beautiful would make for like a more elevated experience in working out so that these are not products that are just, just pink or, you know, or, or colorful. These are products that are actually like better fitness products that you're actually more inspired to use because of their design. Um, and so we launched uh, the power ring and bars, which are essentially uh, hand weights in mid 2020. And when those started to do well, and we got this feedback around there being like more ergonomic and like even weight distribution and just like more fun to use, we said, you know, there's something here that's far bigger than Bengals that we've not otherwise seen in the market. And so, yeah, we've been uh, leaning into product diversification. I think we'll launch uh, upwards of 10 products this year. And we launched half a dozen products last year. So it's been awesome. And I love the kits that you guys have. What's such a, what a great idea to have these, like the starter kit, you know, for the person who's new to maybe working out at home or, you know, then you've got like the travel kit, the floor kit, the complete home gym kit. And it all comes in like the same colors. It's all color coordinated. And you guys obviously have such a modern color palette. It's really beautiful stuff and the shapes and, it's really well done. You guys have done such an incredible job. Even just between Natalie and I, I mean, we work out very, very differently. So, you know, we now have a product assortment that can allow for like different sorts of, you know, bundling opportunities, uh, depending on how you prefer to work out. And so I think like, as we launch new products, there will inevitably be new kits. And again, the feedback has been so overwhelmingly positive that, we're just really encouraged to try to like, you know, make, make fitness more inspiring than intimidating the way it's, you know, historically often been. So what is it like, you know, you guys got married, you guys are now husband and wife. I mean, now you have this, this company it's uh, what's it like working with your spouse? I should also say we have a, a one-year-old child. Oh, you do. Congrats. Yeah. Watson. I have a almost 10 month old. His name's Watson. Yeah. What's your name? What's yours name? Marvin. Marvin. Marvin's great. Oh, I love that name. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's an amazing experience, you know, not without its challenges. I think early days, especially, especially 2020 with the surging demand, it's just like, holy shit, you know, <laughs> like, what, what are we doing? And yeah. through, honestly, through all of 2020, actually, even into early 2021, it, we were just five people. And those five people were myself, my wife, her two sisters and their childhood friend. And so it was like, it was duct taped together. You know, it really was like shipping every unit by hand. Like I would update packaging and art and website Natalie would be dealing with our suppliers and like logistics and, and customs. And so I think over the years, it's now been four years, we've just sort of found our swim lanes and Bala is a constant topic in our lives, but it's, it's a business and brand that we're really passionate about. So it can feel like work, but it doesn't always feel like work. And it's, you know, it's just amazing to be able to work with my wife every day particularly on the days that we don't disagree. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to get to uh, conflict resolution and advice you have for that stuff another time. Um, I know you have to run. Thank you so much for sharing your story and building Bala with Natalie. Do you have any final advice for entrepreneurs that are tuning in about entrepreneurship, how to kind of jump in to start a business and what can we see next from Bala? I know you guys have lots of products coming out, but um, if there's anything you want to share on that end as well. Yeah, I would say on the advice front, uh, and this is really true for us in hindsight, is that like baby steps are still steps. And as long as you're taking them, you're moving forward. You know, I had a lot of ideas die on the vine because I just kept them at the idea stage. And I would talk about them actually, like in social settings and people would be like, Hey, that's a pretty cool idea. And so I'd felt validated 
that as if the idea alone was enough, but the idea never became anything at all. <laughs> right. Ideas are kind of cheap, you know? <laughs> yeah, you get like, there's like social currency and social validation, but in taking tiny steps, like sketching it on a napkin, you know, thinking through materials, if it is a consumer product, you know, talking to folks, not just like in terms of whether or not they like it, but how they might be able to help or give consult, like it all, it all counts and it all adds up. And, you know, we've put ourselves in a position where we now have a little bit more resource to be able to like do things the the quote unquote right way. That's just because we've done honestly tens of thousands of things at this point, the wrong way. And in embracing this really iterative sort of baby step process. So uh, that's, that's how we've gotten here. And I, that's the advice I'd give to folks on Bala. I think, you know, we just want to be the kind of antidote to this ultra serious fitness category and deliberately blur lines between fashion and fitness and, and create a, a, a brand that people feel is, is theirs. So I think you'll hopefully see more product, more content, more partnerships, more activations that deliver on that if we're if we're doing our jobs right. And if we're not, we encourage folks to to hit us up, hello at ballabangles.com and tell us. <laughs> tell us what's up. Awesome. Yeah. Max, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for making the time. And um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for everything. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.